Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. If you haven't been with us for a while, here's our series. It's called The Power of Forgiveness. This is week three of three. We're going to wrap this whole thing up, and uh, I'll catch you up to speed in 30 seconds. Ready? Week one was this. If you're a Christian, forgiveness is not an option. <laughs> Jesus expects Christians to forgive people. And in this series, we're not talking about the forgiveness that God gives us. We're talking about the forgiveness that we extend and receive with one another. Uh, week two was this. We talked about the process of forgiveness. So like, if you're willing to forgive or be forgiven with each other, then here's just a couple steps in this process. You might, this might sound familiar to you. We talk about doing a personal assessment. Like when you need to forgive someone, what does it actually reveal about you when you look in the mirror? We talked about you got to feel the anger and express it appropriately, not wildly. Choosing to forgive, it's about making a decision and then sticking to that decision. And when you make a decision to forgive, you got to do something, express it some way. So, uh, why does all of this matter? Quick question. Do you think people really struggle with forgiveness? Do you think people, after forgiveness uh, has been spoken, do you think people struggle to let it go? Like, do you think that forgiveness is really an issue in the church when it comes to our relationship with each other? Um, let me give you just a couple stats here. Do you know, according to surveys, 69% of Americans hold a grudge in the workplace. That's just in the workplace. There's a poll of 12,000 people from six different countries. The average adult holds seven grudges all at once. I read that stat. I was like, you're crazy. There's no way. But 12,000 people, six different countries. It must be all those other countries, right? Top five grudges. Here they are. Someone made a false accusation against you. Number two, someone betrayed you. Number three, Lending an item and not getting it back. You're like, yeah, I still don't have my lawnmower back, right? And you're still mad about it. Childhood bullying. And then the fifth, someone stealing credit for something that you achieved. Like grudges, lack of forgiveness. It's a pretty relevant issue today. Question, who's better at forgiveness, men or women? Look at me. It's bad moment to get eye contact with your spouse right now, Okay. In a survey of 1,423 people, 37% of men have actively sought out forgiveness. But of the women, 48% of them have actively sought out forgiveness. The stats go on to reveal that women are actually a little bit better at this process of forgiveness, right? But it makes sense, right, guys? Because when you learn about forgiveness, you learned on the playground, right? You had a little problem, Slugged him in the arm. You're like, hey, we're good, right? Yeah, we're good. I mean, it's like third grade forgiveness amongst guys. But we grow up to be adults, and that doesn't always work. Actually, that shouldn't ever work. You, um, lastly, the research shows that men, and I found this fascinating, men are also less likely to say that God has forgiven them. Isn't that interesting? to receive forgiveness from God because one of the ways that we are empowered to actually extend forgiveness to other people is understanding and experience our own deep forgiveness from God. So 
When it comes to our relationships, hurts we experience. Forgiveness we need to extend and receive. And grudges, they're actually a really big deal, not just for people in America. From my perspective, I see this happen in the church all the time. So here's our question. How are we going to wrap up this series today? I'm going to try and answer this one question. What's supposed to happen after forgiveness? A wrong has been done. It's been discussed between these two people and forgiveness has been extended. Then what? Do you reconcile that relationship? Uh, What does it mean to reconcile a relationship? Do you just go back to how it used to be? Is that the expectation? Do you pretend the offense never happened? Is it okay to evaluate the relationship and ask this one question? Do you trust them? It's a great question. We're going to try and answer this today. So real quick, what is reconciliation? You might think that it's like, oh, you know, you just go back to exactly how the relationship used to be. Uh, Here it is. Reconciliation means the relationship is restored, but it's not the same as it was before. It's restored. Like, yeah, yes, we are friends. And if it's the offenses in marriage, like, yes, we are still married. We're still husband and wife. If it's with your kids, yes, we're still family. But it doesn't mean that the relationship was exactly what it was before. Let me give you an example, okay? This might be a little extreme, who knows? Um, your spouse lied to you about where she was gonna be. She said, I'm working late tonight, but you found out, doesn't matter how you found out, but you found out that she actually went out to drinks with her colleagues. There were both men and women there. You confront her. She is remorseful. She tells the truth She's repentant, declares it'll never happen again. Do you forgive her? Well, yes, that is the expectation. Do you reconcile? Yes, I mean, you're still moving forward in a married relationship together. Do you hold this over her head to shame her in the future? No, you don't. But do you return to the same kind of relationship pretending it never happened? No. And most of us think, no, 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 the Christian thing is to do just forgive and forget. We talked about this last week. You can't choose to forget something because you're going to wake up in the middle of the night and you're going to be thinking about what you're thinking about. You didn't choose that. Here's a good point for us to remember. Forgiveness is freely given, but trust, trust is earned. Jesus tells this story, and I'm not going to go into this whole parable, um, but he talks about this, this servant that was untrustworthy and them, the one that was trustworthy. And he comes to this conclusion in Luke 16. He says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. But whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. What does that mean? I think it means this is that trust can fade, but trust can be built. You want to start being trusted more than you start being faithful, trustworthy with these little things. And what it reveals is that you can actually be trusted with more. But someone that you trust can start doing little things in a little way to not be trustworthy. And that trust can be broken and fade away. Um, Example. When we show signs of integrity and managing things well, trust is built. You're, You're going to get this. Parents. We inherently know this when we raise our teenagers, right? Uh, When your kid, when your teenager turns 16, you don't just throw them the keys to the car and be like, have fun, right? 
There is a process that takes place in this. Number one, they have to have skill to drive a car. Number two, they have to have the strength of character and self-control so that when you're not there, they will handle it in a responsible way. And that wasn't developed that morning when you threw the keys of the car to them, right? Hopefully it was developed, the skill and the self-discipline and the maturity and the control, that was developed over years, right? You watched them drive. You watched the speedometer. You watched in the parking lot when, when we taught our kids how to drive. This was always awesome because um, there'd be this, you're driving too fast. And it was whether they touched the accelerator in the parking lot, right? Do you really need an accelerator in a parking lot? And our kids would be like, yes, we do. But we had to trust them over time. Um, the question becomes this, though. When it comes to someone who breaks your trust, you loan a casserole dish. They never bring it back. It's your neighbor. And you're like, it's a casserole dish, right? Big deal. You probably will still loan them another one, and maybe you'll ask for both of them back. But in a marriage, when trust is broken, when trust is broken from a parent to a kid or a kid to a parent, how do you actually rebuild that trust? You see, when it's a teenager, we look at that and we go, yeah, they're expected to not have trust. They need to build that. But the truth in rallies is this. I want us to understand this as adults. We have to build it as well. We're not above our teenagers. We actually have to build this trust. So here's the question. How do we rebuild trust? Um, when we're, when we're dealing with our kids, I think it's funny. Like we look at them and we assume like you're going to do dumb stuff that's going to break trust with us, right? And they have a physiological excuse. Their frontal lobe where they make decisions about morality and decision about consequences is not fully developed until they're like men until they're 28. Girls until like they're 24. My kids have reminded me this all through their 20s. Dad, I'm sorry I did that. But you know, the whole frontal lobe thing, like not fully developed there, like, but it's growing and we're, we're doing better. But it's just weird as adults where we can't assume that we're always going to do it right. Can I just say this? There is only one person in the world who is completely trustworthy, and it is God. That's why when you read in the scriptures, you look up the word trust and how it shows up again and again and again. It is all about us trusting God and his declaration that he is trustworthy and you can trust him. And maybe some of you are coming to church today and you're like, I don't even know if I can trust God. Maybe that's the step that God's inviting you to today, that you can trust him with your life. He loves you so much. He gave his son's life on a cross to die for our sins so that you could be forgiven. I mean, who's done more than that for you? But let's get back to relationships together. If we're not all trustworthy, how do you then build trust? I'm going to hand you two great resources today, okay? Um, not just the scriptures, but if, um, if you've had to ever end a relationship and you needed to know what it looks like to end a relationship because it was untrustworthy, Henry Cloud writes a book called Necessary Endings. Um, he also wrote another book that's recently released called Trust. If you need to learn how to rebuild trust and you're going to struggle through that, and you're going to try and take some of this information, get Henry Cloud's book called Trust. You'll see where it shows up in this message today. Uh, but in his book, Necessary Endings, he describes three types of people. So if you're going to rebuild trust, figure out what kind of person you're dealing with here. The three types of people are this. There's, there's um, wise people, and wise people look like this. And these are all revealed in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 8 reads this way. It says, rebuke the wise. 
Okay, you're gonna confront them about something that they did wrong. You're gonna say, hey, listen, you broke trust with me. You rebuke the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they are wiser still. What does this mean? Wise people, they have the ability to take constructive criticism. They will hear it, internalize it, process it, and respond in a mature way by apologizing and owning it. And then they're gonna wanna turn around and change their behavior so that you can rebuild trust. They're grateful for the feedback. Um, question, have you ever tried to give someone feedback and you're like, they're not going to receive this well? Maybe it's because they're not actually the wise person. And remember, being wise doesn't mean that you always respond well, meaning you're going to let people down at times. The only 100% trustworthy person in the world is God. So wise people, though, they're humble enough to hear it, own it, apologize, make changes. Here's the second group. They're not the wise. They're actually called the foolish in Proverbs. Sometimes uh, Proverbs refers to them as mockers, okay? That verse in Proverbs chapter nine, it begins with this. It says, whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Foolish people, mockers. They hear your words of confrontation and your words are marked with grace and truth. Really important. Not just truth, but grace. And then they turn the tables on you. You've had this happen, I'm sure. You confront them, say, listen, you did this. Uh, I was hurt by that. And they turn it around and go, but do you know how, how many times that you've let me down? They didn't own it. They didn't accept it. They heard what you said, but they just, they turned it all around to say, do you know how bad you are? The mocker, they're going to insult you in the process. They're not going to accept responsibility. They're going to be defensive and deny the truth. Now, I got to give you a caveat here. You and I, we're all good-natured people, right? We're all emotionally mature, right? There will be moments in our life where we get defensive. Someone's going to say something to you and, and say that you did it wrong or you hurt their feelings, and it's going to trigger you. And inside, you're going to get defensive. So if you get defensive, am I calling you a mocker or a fool? You're like, oh, yep, Proverbs 9, here we go. You're a fool. All of us at times in your great maturity will get defensiveness because something they said triggered you. But when you back away and have a calm heart and a clear mind, and you really think about it, there's some clarity, and you come back and you go, you know what? You were right. It didn't feel good. I didn't like what was said, but, but the truth is I was being defensive. Do you see the difference? A mocker, though, makes a lifestyle of being defensive. They don't take ownership for hardly anything in their life. When things go great, they take ownership. They're like, oh, yeah, look how good things are. They take the credit. And when things turn south, they blame everybody else or explain why they did what they did. They're a fool or they're a mocker. And by the way, if, if you need tips for dealing with fools or mockers, just go to Matthew 18. You show them how that hurt you and they don't respond well. So you, it says you take someone else with you and you show that to them. I'm not trying to bully. I'm not trying to build up a case against you, but man, you are not owning this. You're not hearing me. So if that doesn't work, you take a couple more with you. And if that doesn't work, you bring it to a group of people. And if that doesn't work and they do not own what they've done, you leave that person you step out of relationship with that person so that the loss of relationship might cause them to hurt and repent so that eventually there can be restoration. Wow, I summarized Matthew 18 in like 30 seconds there. 
that's not where I intended to like go with this morning, but if you need to do that, take a look at Matthew 18. There's a third group of people, okay? You have the wise, you have the foolish, and then you have evil people. And I'm just going to be very careful with this. Proverbs also calls them the wicked. There's some people who intend to harm you. Proverbs 9, we're in that same little section of scripture, says, whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. The wicked will turn on you not to prove you are wrong like, like the fool, They will turn on you to hurt you physically, to hurt you financially, to hurt you emotionally, to hurt you relationally. They just want to hurt you. What do you do with evil people? You go into protection mode. And that is not wrong. That is wise. You protect yourself from these kind of people. Now, careful. If you've ever had a conflict with someone. And the conflict, like the confrontation of saying, hey, you hurt me. Uh, I'm trying to, we need to extend and receive forgiveness here. We got to work this relationship out. If that ever didn't go well, it's really easy just to categorize someone. You know what? The problem with that person is they're just dumb or they're evil. Isn't it easy to just shove them away as they're just bad and they're incapable of this? Maybe they're just having a momentary foolish moment and maybe wisdom will win out in the end. Be careful categorizing and pushing people into this. Proverbs 24 tells us what to do with this. Do not envy the wicked. Do not desire their company. For their hearts plot violence and their lips talk about making trouble. Proverbs 27, 12. The prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. Have you watched people walk back into relationships with people who just keep hurting them over and over again? It's not the wise thing to do. So I tell you that three kinds of people, right? The wise, the foolish, and the evil. You got to figure out who you're dealing with. Now, if it's your spouse, you probably didn't marry someone evil. Okay. I'm just saying, let's start there. Can we? Maybe there's times where they're a little foolish, but let's assume you chose well. Because man, if not, you chose evil. Okay. I'm just saying it's not all on them. You chose evil, but assuming the best, right? They're a wise person who's having moments of making unwise decisions, but you're inviting them to step back into maturity and be a wise person who two people together are going to be in a wise, healthy, loving, forgiving, grace-filled, reconciliation-filled, trust-filled relationship. So it leads us to the second part of this. How do you actually rebuild trust? Um, I mentioned Henry Cloud, uh, his book called Trust. He gives the five essentials of trust. Um, I've adapted these. I just want to share these with you and show you where they show up in the scriptures. Um, All five of these are not mutual. You were the person hurt. This is the offender. It doesn't mean it all goes this way. You have to prove yourself trustworthy as well. So here's the five building blocks of trust. The first is this, it's motive. What I mean by that, it's about prioritizing the other person's welfare. Having a motive and intent for the other person's welfare is this, dating, right? When you first start dating somebody, you're looking for this. Do they care about me or do they just care about themselves? Now, you don't know motives by just, you know, you don't walk up to a smell motives. You watch by their behavior. Do they care for me? Um, some people are really good starters of relationships, right? 
Because the truth is this, we all start dating well. Anybody who's, anyone who doesn't start well, you have only ever been on one date with people. Hopefully you made it to date number two and three and four and and 100, right? But the reality is, is uh, we start well. But we all get comfortable at some point, don't we? We, we, this happens in marriage. You first get married, and all of a sudden, wow, we care for each other. We show care for each other. But sometimes we slack after a while. We never have to be encouraged to care for our own needs, do we? We're all just really good and innate at that. Philippians chapter 2, <clears throat> Paul is describing Jesus' character, and he describes him as this servant who cares for people and shows that he cares for people by coming down and dying on a cross for us. And then he gives us these instructions. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Listen, as a Christian, have you declared that? I'm going to put other people first. I'm going to be second. I'm going to be third. I'm going to be last. Or you're always worried about being first. Because Jesus is saying this. If you're going to be one of my followers, listen, uh, put yourself second in your marriage. It doesn't mean your needs don't matter. Marriage is such this beautiful picture of one person elevating the needs of their spouse above their own. And that same spouse taking their spouse's needs and elevating it above their own. It's not a competition, but it's a fun little way of saying, how do I out care for my spouse, right? Without keeping score. That's a healthy marriage. The uh, first is motive. Do we operate like that? The second building block is this, is it's actually about understanding what that person needs. It's being able to recognize the other person's needs. Philippians goes on to say this, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, this is important. Maybe the person has a good motive. You're like, they have a really good heart. Like, I think they intend, but they have no idea what I need. Now, (laughs) you better listen to this one. If you ever approach your spouse and say, you should just know what I need. That is wrong. I'm not saying that it happens from mostly one gender to another. And all the guys are laughing. You can figure that part out. They're not, they're not required. I mean, it's not possible. They're not you. They don't think like you. They didn't have the same history as you. They don't know what you need. So you can solve it super quick. Tell them. Just tell them what you need in a relationship. And then if they can then understand that, you have to know mentally, oh, they need this. Oh, they like this. Oh, trust is built this way for them. You can go into love languages. Like, how do they feel love? How do they give and receive love? If you can understand that person, and we're not even talking just about marriage, your friends, how do they know that you care for them? Do you understand what they need? The... um, The third is not just motive, and that's not just understanding. It's actually the ability. It's the capacity to deliver what is promised in a relationship. So their motive is good. They understand what you need. The question is this, can they do it? (laughs) Do they have the follow-through to this? I mean, can they speak to you in a way? Can they prioritize you in a way that the relationship matters? Um there was a church that was kind of doubting the Apostle Paul and his care for them. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. To the church in Thessalonica, he says this. He says, but we proved to be gentle among you. 
as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. He's like, man, I, I was like a parent to you. I was like a mother who's like caring for her child. I proved it to you. It goes on to say, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. Well, here's how fathers deal with their children. This is how Paul treated the church. Encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. When two people are uh, building a relationship, rebuilding trust, it's not just about our intent. Well, I intended the right thing. It's the ability to care for each other. So listen, if someone's trying to rebuild trust with you, How's their motive? Is it being evidenced by their action? How's their understanding? Do they, do they understand what it is you need? Did you communicate it to them? The third is this. Do they actually have the ability to follow through with that? Sometimes it's not a skill. There's something beyond this that's the fourth building block, and it's character. Do they have the moral strength and the personhood to meet the trust requirements? Um, character is a weird word. Um, what does it mean? I think it's about our strength of conviction to do the right thing when we know what the right thing to do is. There's some people that that is not as strong. Do they have the kind of character? And I'll say it again, no one gets it right all the time. Be careful in a conflict with someone that you watch an action and they break trust with you or they don't follow through on something. Be careful of going after their character. Character is revealed season after season after season, never by one or two events. Are you with me on this? It's about having this conviction. And character is is revealed. And Paul writes this in Ephesians. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. You've been called to be a Christian. You've been called to be a father You've been called to be a husband. You've been called to be a friend to your neighbor. Whatever you've been called to do, your workplace, live a life in such a way that matches the calling. You've been given valuable responsibilities and valuable relationships. This character says, I'm going to live in such a way that matches that calling. To be a parent, to be a husband, to be a a wife, to be a mother, is there a greater calling in life? You're not going to get it right all the time. But are we convicted of and aiming at this? I I want my character to live in such a way that it matches the calling that God has given us. When we harm those relationships, um, I think we just need to value them enough to rebuild trust. Um, I I think the character quality in this that I'm going to harp on for just a minute, and I put it at the very end of your notes, is humility. Um, I've been pastoring for decades. Um, I have a lot of people in my office that have had broken relationships and they come because they're like, we don't know how to do this reconciliation thing. We don't know how to rebuild trust. Some of those have been marriages. And sometimes there's an offender and the offended. And the offender apologizes, is repentant, and they're asking, how do we move forward with this? It takes unbelievable humility to say, I'll do whatever it takes to rebuild trust. Because what it means is this, is there's things like transparency. Are you going to be transparent about where you're going to be at all times? Are you humble enough to actually have your phone checked by your spouse? Are you humble enough 
to be in accountability with someone? Are, are you humble enough to actually get the help that you need? That's all humility. And it feels like you're, you're almost living under the weight of a bad decision that you made. And it's almost like everyone's holding it over your head and you just get tired of that. that, that that's not people holding it over your head. That's living in humility with boundaries that says you messed up, so rebuild. We just lack the humility to live with that kind of transparency often. But in this relationship, you know what I see? The one who offended and the one who was hurt, somewhere in the hurt process, this person often, because of lack of their own humility, decides, you know what, they did that. It certainly gives me the freedom to respond in a bad way. They stepped out on me. Why shouldn't I be able to? They lied to me. Why do I have to be 100% honest? And now all of a sudden the tables have turned. The one who was hurt feels justified in either holding all this over their head or they feel justified in responding just negatively to them. And then they just make a bad decision and now trust is broken again and they're both reeling in their hurt and justifying their hurtful behavior. Does this make sense at all? Does this bring up a relationship? Does this bring up something that like, yeah, I've been there. And then you realize, oh wow, there's no innocent parties. There's no trustworthy parties that 100% get it right all the time. Welcome to marriage. Welcome to raising kids. Welcome to the church. That's who we are in Christ. Jesus says, I'm trustworthy. So we're going to model our lives after him and try and show the grace and truth that he offers us. Trust requires humility to remain teachable, accept boundaries, pursue help, share transparently, and embrace when people question you. That's what it's about. Um, There is one last thing I want to say about the whole building blocks, and it's number five, and it's about a track record. Having a track record builds a trustworthy pattern. And 1 Corinthians 4, I think, just states it beautifully. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Your job was entrusted to you. Are you cheating? Are you cutting corners? Are you undercutting other people to build your reputation? Are you trustworthy? And are you faithful? You've been given relationships in your life. Regardless of how you've been hurt, are you being faithful? Are you open to people rebuilding trust with you? Um, it takes a lot of humility for this, and I want to end with this. I mentioned this, this at the very beginning of this series, that there's no process and there's no teaching that can make a heart soft and willing to forgive. I honestly cannot, I mean, the scripture, when it comes to forgiveness, really is all about this. Forgive, forgive, forgive. It's this command to forgive. And they don't really talk about the process all that much compared to everything else that's said. 99% of what's written about forgiveness in the Bible is this. Do it. You'll figure it out. Trying to walk the steps of the process is not going to soften a person who's just unwilling to let go of that grudge. And open themselves up to being disappointed again. My last question is just this. What's Jesus inviting you to do? 
What's Jesus inviting you to do? Because I think in the church today, what I see more often than anything else is not forgiveness, it's avoidance. (laughs) Person in my community group, man, they were just kind of rude, didn't like them. So we avoid them. We do this with people we had relationship with for 10 years and something goes south and instead of addressing it, we avoid them. And then if, if there is a confrontation, we're like, oh, let's talk about it. There's forgiveness. The moment after forgiveness, the months and the years to follow, there's this awkwardness because we never talk about it. And you're like, I just don't trust him anymore. Well, have you talked about rebuilding trust with each other? Or do we just avoid it and ignore it and pretend it's not there? You're like, you know what? I, I, that's where I got my relational bandwidth. That's where I got filled up with those people. But I'm going to drop those friends. I'm going to move over here. I'm not saying the people you've known all your life, you've got to stay in contact with. But do we not actually value people enough to walk through the forgiveness, the reconciliation, and the trust rebuilding process? Because it can be restored. By the power of Christ, the forgiveness he offers us, how he modeled it for us on the cross, it can be restored. So my question is, what is God inviting you to do? Is there an unaddressed hurt from a relationship that you value? Is there a hurt that was forgiven, but man, there's still a little bit of a grudge there? Or maybe a forgiveness that was offered, but there's no plan to rebuild trust and you got to address it. Or maybe we've never actually offered trust to someone who has earned it. Maybe in your book, they need to just keep earning it. And you need to look them in the face and say, you know what? You've proven yourself. I trust you. Because those words can bring so much life and healing to someone. Maybe Jesus is talking about a marriage in your life. Maybe it's with your kids and your family. Maybe it's with your friends. Doggone, it might even be with people in this room today. I'm going to change the question just slightly. Not what is Jesus inviting you to do. I'm going to ask this question. What will you do today because of what Jesus is inviting you to do? Because his invitation doesn't mean that you received it. What you're willing to go walk out and do today in forgiveness and reconciliation and trust, that's the thing that matters. Not did you understand God's word, but did you build your life on the rock by the obedience to God's word? There's life in it. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may we walk in obedience to your word May we apologize when we are wrong. May we have the humility to submit to building trust again when we've blown it. God, may we be so soft-hearted that we would be willing to forgive people and even reconcile and even look for those moments where they're rebuilding trust with us. Lord, forgive us for being hard-hearted. Forgive us for being avoiders instead of forgivers. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody in this room that they have never trusted you with their life to lead your life, trusted you for salvation, that they would know that you are completely trustworthy. That salvation is Jesus, is about us being forgiven so we can be with you in eternity. And if there's people in the room that need that, God, I pray that they would take that step today. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.